Thank you, Daniel. I love that song. Turn in your Bibles to Mark 13 and put a finger in 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation chapter 13. You know, I I knew my mother-in-law would be visiting today, and I thought, well, what's a good passage to preach? And, you know, who knows? We may have visitors, and lo and behold, we do. I thought, well, let's preach on the abomination of desolation. (laughs) No, uh, that's not how it goes here. Um, For the most part, we we commit ourselves to, uh, I I commit to exposing you to a steady, continual, and hopefully not overbearing uh, uh, portion of Scripture and we, we dedicate ourselves to going through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And uh, uh, some of you have seen how um, uh, a rather comprehensive survey of doctrine can come up um, just going through verse by verse and not picking and choosing what you want to have preached to you. I believe this is the best way to build up our faith. This is the best way to know who Christ is and what he has said. So as I alluded to in my uh, attempt to be humorous, we have come to uh, the uh, um, abomination of desolation. This is perhaps the most mysterious and interesting feature of eschatology. This is going to be the first sign that will take place in the second half of the tribulation, will be, uh, if I didn't already say it, we're in Mark 13, verse 14 through 23. And this is the most mysterious because in what Mark records, as well as Matthew, we're not told an awful lot about what this is. And a lot of ink has been spilled, a lot of uh, papers have been printed as to what this is. And a lot of speculation has been made. And we're going to, try to re- we're going to try to make some sense of that. Um, and so I trust you haven't uh, busted out your VHS of Left Behind anytime soon. Um, you know, we, we try to be uh, innovative here, and maybe we could have just put that up on the, on the display and just called it a day, but we're going to th- do this old-fashioned. So let's read, let's read the text. Uh, the first point will be the first half of verse 14. Uh, that will be the abomination of desolation. And then as as we continue in verse 14, all the way to the end of verse 23, that will be the the despair of the ages. The abomination of desolation and the despair of the ages. Verse 14 says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. And that is probably uh, an editorial comment not said by the Lord Jesus on the occasion of the Olivet Discourse. This is probably something that Mark, as well as Matthew, put in as an indication that uh, the fulfillment of this wasn't meant to be revealed in the lives of the apostles, but to those who would have their reading. Uh, The fulfillment seems to be to those who would be reading these things, not hearing them from his lips. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. 
the one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. So we have been looking at a series of signs that the Lord Jesus had said will happen, that when they start happening and when they start happening together, then his disciples would know that the end of the age has has come nigh and that everything is being wrapped up and that the Lord's return is imminent. We have looked at the coming of many antichrists. We've looked at wars and rumors of wars. We've looked at earthquakes and famines and persecution. And now we come to the next sign, the abomination of desolation. Jesus says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be. And already already in what the Lord said, there's something different about this sign compared to the previous signs. Because this sign will be a particular, uh, a singular event. Up until now, Jesus had said that many will come in my name. And there will be wars and rumors of wars. Do you, do you hear the S at the end of my words? Plural. Many. There will be earthquakes and famines. And then uh, we saw in verses 9 and 13 that the perpetrators and the victims are all in the plural, which are summed up in Jesus' statement in verse 13 that, uh, uh, and this doesn't really come out in the English, but uh, you is plural, so it really should be translated y'all to, to get the full sense. Y'all will be hated by all. So these signs will be happening again and again and again and again and very rapidly as in an escalation. But, as we come to verse 14, but, in contrast, there's a difference that takes place. This is a particular sign. This is a one-time sign, a one-place and a one-person sign. This sign is, will be a one-time event. It centers around a particular action, one action that one person will do in one place. Notice when you see the abomination not only is the abomination singular but it's the so there is one thing in view and uh, i have to be a little nerdy when he says the abomination of desolation standing in the place that it should not be uh standing uh what's interesting about the greek is 
uh, it's called a participle, and it has, um, even though it sounds like a verb, it has attributes of a noun. It's masculine. And no, the Greeks are not gender confused. Uh, there, there is a masculine sense attributed. So there, it's not, a, not just a thing. It's not just an it. It involves a man. So a person is involved with this abomination of desolation. Now let's look at these two words. And we are, I'm trying to make this uh, uh, interesting as we tie all these details together. These words, abomination of desolation... Anyone use those words in their regular vocabulary lately? Abomination, desolation. Abomination is something that absolutely, really disgusts you. Something that is abhorrent. Something that you don't just find annoying. It would be something or someone or or something that you just can't stomach. You you refuse to tolerate it. It makes your innards churn and turn at the sight or at the sound of it. Biblically, this word is connected to the things that God finds highly offensive and highly detestable. Things like idolatry. Things like going after other gods and, and worshiping and attributing your your faith and your uh, your trust into uh, God's made out of stone and wood uh, and bone and in light of the one true God who is not seen or dwells in houses built by hands. So things like idolatry, perversion, gross immorality, uh, you can uh, see in Deuteronomy 29, 16 and 17 that abominations are uh, uh, linked to the idols that Israel saw among the Canaanites, idols that involved uh, child sacrifice and gross, um, shall we say, perversion. You can, uh, you can look in uh, Leviticus 18 and 19 and 20, I believe, for some examples of those, what, what some of those abominations were. But they were perverted. They were immoral. They were indecent. 1 Kings 11 uh, refers to the idols of Solomon's wives as he catered to them and built high places for them to worship. Second Kings 16.3 says that Ahaz offered up his son through fire, meaning he placed him in fire. And we looked at this a couple months ago uh, when we looked at Gehenna. And the, remember the pit, the, the fire that, that is not quenched. He offered up his son through fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from the sons of Israel. These things, these things are indecent. These things are immoral and perverse. And then he says, uh, uh, he attributes or qualifies this abomination by saying it's, it's uh, of desolation. Now, maybe we don't know what that word means at first sight or uh, me saying it. But if I say, if I walk around and I say, wow, this is a desolate place, you kind of get the sense what I mean, right? There's, there's nobody around. That it's vacated. It's, uh, uh, everyone is gone. It's been abandoned. It's deserted. So... To, to, to put these things together, the abomination is the cause. It's the catalyst. It's the thing that's going to get the ball rolling. And the desolation is the effect. And so the idea is, for a time, there are going to be these numerous signs here and there, over and over. But at some point, some particular, some singular great event 
some abomination, a great abomination is going to happen. It's going to involve a man. He's going to do something very reprehensible in the sight of God. It's going to be in, uh, he's going to do something he shouldn't do in some place he shouldn't be. And it will be observable because Jesus says that you will see it. And when it is seen, the effect it's going to have on those who see it is wherever it is that he's standing, wherever that sphere is, whatever that location is, will soon be desolated. Now there's, even with what Mark gives us and Matthew gives us, there's there's still more we can put together by going to other scriptures, more details that we can find to shed light on this. Mark leaves the location undefined. Matthew uh, gives us a little bit more, and we're going to go to some other passages. But uh, Matthew says that uh, the abomination of desolation was spoken of through Daniel, the prophet. And then he says, uh, uh, after saying standing, he says, in the holy place. Now, where's that? Where? Temple. That's right. It is the temple. That's what the disciples would have clearly understood. It is the temple. And that ought to remind us of uh, what we looked at a couple uh, uh, weeks ago in Second Thessalonians 3, 4. And hopefully you have your finger there. Flip over there. Second Thessalonians uh, 2, verses 3 and 4. Jesus, uh, Paul identifies that uh, uh, this man, that before the, the day of the Lord comes, he says the apostasy uh, must come first. We looked at that. And then he says that the man of lawlessness is revealed. And then he also calls him the son of destruction. Now, the man of lawlessness tells us that he will be a man who doesn't recognize law. He will be lawless. He will be a law unto himself, and he won't recognize any other law, let alone the law of God. And he's going to be like Pharaoh, who said both in his heart and openly so that his servants followed his example, who, who's the Lord? Who is he that I should listen to what he has to say? He's also called the son of destruction. And this is a very unique phrase that's only used of one other person in the whole of Scripture. Anybody know who that is? Judas, good job. Judas, whom John writes that Satan entered. And if you look down at verse 9, Paul even says that the coming of this man of lawlessness is in accord with the activity of who? Verse 9, Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. So I take that to mean that as Satan did with Judas... He will personally possess and empower and act through this man. And what's he going to do? Well, go back up to verse 4. He opposes himself. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God, and that includes the one true God, or object of worship. And this is his intention. This is his goal. So that he takes his seat in the where? temple of god for what purpose displaying himself as being god he as it were uh dethrones god and he thinks so highly of himself that he thinks he is the only suitable replacement 
for God. And as I said, this man is doing it as he is possessed and controlled and, and, and directed by Satan. This will be his desire, but it's also Satan's desire. Isaiah 14, 13, and 14 uh, says this, and it's been attributed to, uh, to God speaking, uh, reading Satan's heart. He said, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Now, the interesting thing about the, the title, the most high, is that there's only one who can have that title. If there's somebody else who, who is as high as the most high, then the most high ceases to be the most high. It would be the most highs. But this man... And devil wants to exalt himself up to God's level. It'll be the devil. It, it is the devil's desire. It will be this man's desire. And that is what he imagines he will accomplish and achieve as he goes into the temple, which this requires it to be rebuilt, even though it's not there now. He will declare himself to be God and he will demand. He won't ask. He won't ask. He will demand. It will be a requirement that people worship him as if he's God. That is what I believe is the abomination of desolation. And it will have a desolating effect because if you remember, how did the Jews respond when Jesus declared himself to be deity? What did they do? What was the emotional response? They were offended, right? They wanted to kill him. They're not going to be able to do that with Antichrist. He's going to have the world's strongest army behind him. And when this man, I mean, when this man, who he will be a tyrannical madman. He will be out of control. I mean, the scripture calls him a beast. That's what his, that's what his, character is like that is what his personality will be like he, he'll look great on the outside he'll be very alluring and winsome he is a beast in his nature you deny a beast what he wants he's not going to respond kindly i remember there was some movie i saw a long time ago and i remember you never in a hostage situation you never tell the guy making demands you never say no right you you because that's going to push him over the edge this madman is going to be told no by Israel, by the Jews. And when he is denied what he seeks, he's going to unleash his fury starting in Jerusalem. So Matthew referred to Daniel the prophet. So it's, it's, it's profitable to go there. Um, uh, you can flip over to 927 if you like. It's, it's only one verse. I'll read it. Um, but it's helpful to, to know what Daniel says because the abomination of desolation as a phrase, it appears three times. The first, uh, and the one that we'll look at is in 927, but it's also used in 1131 and also 1211. In, in 927, be, Daniel begins with he, and, and uh, if, if you look up in verse 26, the, 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 the last person referred to is not Messiah, but the prince who is to come. I take that as a separate person. And I'll show you why in a second. I don't think this is Messiah, but he says, Daniel 9, 27, 
he will make a firm covenant with the many. Oh, that, that, sounds, like, that sounds like Jesus. Jesus makes covenants. Jesus makes firm covenants, doesn't he? Doesn't he hasn't he made a covenant with all, with all believers, the, the many? Are we the, are we the many? I mean, that sounds like Jesus. How long is this covenant going to last? I mean, at, at the onset, how long does it say it's going to last? One week. But Aaron, I've, I've studied the Old Testament, and I know that a week means seven. So this says uh, that the covenant will, will, will be for, one, for seven years. I sure hope that Jesus' covenants last more than seven years. But it doesn't even last for as long as the, the, the agreement or the contract is supposed to last. Uh, Daniel continues, but in the middle of the week, he, this, this prince who is to come, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And this, that presupposes that the, the ritualism and, and Judaism will be reinstated. And pick up right where it left off. And on the wing of abominations, here we go, will come one who makes desolate. So I said, as I said, I, I don't think the he who is doing all these things is the Christ. But as verse 26 says, he's the prince who is to come. And because he makes a covenant that only lasts for seven years. And even then he doesn't even keep his covenant for seven years. I don't think that's Christ. Christ is not a covenant breaker he breaks it through uh halfway through this week this period of seven years and i think this happens in the middle of the tribulation uh right after the antichrist appears in revelation 11 in verse 3 there's a reference to 42 months in revelation 12 6 there's a reference to 1260 days yeah you do the math those are all pointing to three and a half years that would be the second half of this week. So the idea is, is that this Antichrist figure, he's going to break this contract, this covenant, this treaty, this peace agreement with Israel. Right? And, and up until now, there have been wars and rumors of wars. There's been tumult all over the world, but he's, he's made an agreement with Israel. I mean, isn't that, isn't, you just look at what the news covering the middle east has been like for the last 50 years the world is waiting for someone to just go in and 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 make everyone shake hands and make peace and so that the world can go on with the rest of their life this guy is actually going to do it and it's going to impress a great many people and it's supposed to last for this long but it's only going to last for this long because as we said the the jews will resume their their ritualistic religion of sacrifices to God, they're going to resume being law-keeping people, Torah-observant people. Uh, you remember uh, uh, the Pharisees and how, how rigid they were with the law? Do you know why the Pharisees came to be? After the 70 years of Babylonian captivity, the Jews came back and they said, God sent us into exile because we went after idolatry and we failed to keep the law. We ain't going to break the law ever again we are going to keep the law and we're going to keep the law like no one else ever has done that 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 intention uh uh you know with a little bit of self-righteousness mixed in was event what eventually brought out the party of the pharisees the the rigid rigid law keeping imagine how rigid and how uh how stuck to the law the jews are going to become when they 
come back after 2,000 years of exile. That's, all this is not going to go well when this man demands that he's the law, that he's the highest authority in the land. And so the treaty he makes with Israel is going to be eradicated. Now, the second usage uh, in Daniel, uh, in 1131, you, you look at the context, um, you look at the, at the beginning of chapter 11, and Daniel says that these things, that this has to do with the kings of Persia. And the one who's coming after the kings of Persia, and you, know, you look at church history, that's Alexander the Great. So you trickle down to, to the one who does this act, and it's going to be someone sometime after uh, Alexander. And uh, the f- first Maccabees 50 attributes this to a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He uh, ruled uh, around 167 B.C., and this is a good picture of what's going to happen in the, in the, uh, of when the real Antichrist comes. He, he's, he's not the fulfillment. He's a prototype. He's a rehearsal. I've used that phrase before here, right? He's a rehearsal of the Antichrist. Uh, Antiochus, he was a, a Seleucid king. He invaded Judah. He took over Jerusalem and the temple. He demanded the Jews give up their customs. He forbid circumcision. He forbid food offerings and burnt offerings. Uh, basically all the things that made, that made a Jew feel like he was a Jew, right? The, the things that they did to identify as God's people, he comes in and says, no more. And he, uh, as 1 Maccabees 1.50 says, uh, whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. And, and in verse 54 and continuing, it says he erected, uh, and this is a, a, the phrase, a desolating abomination, which tradition tells us was a swine or a hog that he uh, uh, sacrificed on an altar uh, in the image of, uh, it was a statue of Zeus with his image on the face, his likeness in the face. So you kind of see a little bit of a God complex in this man. And he sacrifices this hog on this altar that he makes of a foreign God in the temple of God and he built altars in the surrounding towns of Judah and the, uh, wherever they found the books of the law, they, they tore them to pieces and then they burned them with fire. And anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. That's what First Maccabees 1, 50-55 says. And church history also tells us that thousands, thousands and thousands of Jews were slaughtered and many who weren't were sold into slavery. That's, that's a picture in the past of what it's going to be like in the future. How do I know that that is not the fulfillment of all three uses in Daniel? Well, what does Jesus say? Uh, I mean, I, I told you that, in, that chapter 11 begins... Uh, and sets it in the context of, uh, of the kings of Persia. But uh, what does Jesus say? When you see the abomination of desolation. That's, a, that's future tense. That's talking about something that hasn't happened. I know, it's, I know time travel is a really popular concept right now. Jesus, isn't, Jesus is not going there. 
So Antiochus Epiphany and what he did in 167, that's, that's in the past. Jesus speaks about this as if it's something that has yet to be accomplished. And so that's, this sign, among with all these other signs, are occurring at the end of the age. And that's, that is what the disciples asked about. What are the signs of the end of the age? What are the signs that everything is concluding? What is the signs that you will come and your presence will be known? And there's one last passage. Go to Revelation 13, 1. Revelation 13, 1. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. This is the arrival of the Antichrist. He, he did appear in verse 11, but at the time he was kind of a nobody. He is now presenting himself to the world. John, John writes, I saw a beast coming out of the sea. And you all know how committed I am to a literal interpretation. This is, an, this is a, a part of scripture where uh, the most probable sense is to see this as symbolism. Do you hear that, Justin? I'm allowing symbolism. Uh, otherwise, this beast is coming up out of the sea. He'd, he'd, have to, he'd have to be like some deranged SpongeBob or Aquaman. I'm not going there. Uh, this, is pl- this is a plausible way to, to see. Uh, it is plausible to see that the sea is symbolic of the chaos of the nations. Why do I say that? In Psalm 65, 7 David, or or the psalmist, equates the roaring of the seas and the roaring of the waves. He equates it. He puts it on the same level as the tumult of the peoples who dwell in the ends of the earth. In Psalm 18, 16, and 17, the psalmist uh, says that God drew him out of many waters and delivered him from a strong enemy. So chaos and tumult and uh, uh, a lack of peace and distress. That this is this can be symbolized by the sea. And if you've ever been out on a boat, you know a nice tranquil lake is quite nice. If you've ever been out in the sea and you are just uh, uh, subject to the roaring winds and the waves, it can be quite quite scary. So out of the chaos of the world, and we've seen the chaos of the world uh, in the previous part of, of Mark 13. This beast comes up, and as I said earlier, he's going to appear like so many other antichrists. He's going to be winsome. He's going to be decorated. He's going to be alluring, but his, his inward nature is that of what? A beast, an animal. Verse 3 says that, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. And if you've read Revelation, especially 5, 6, doesn't that sound oddly familiar to the lamb who was found worthy to open the scroll, standing as if slain, almost as if this one wanted to appear on, on some level to be like Christ? And I imagine what John means by standing as if slain. I I imagine that some tragedy, whether it will be a real thing or if it will be a a delusion, some some tragedy will apparently befall him. Maybe he will be severely injured with no chance of recovery, and lo and behold, he makes a recovery. Maybe he will be assassinated and will appear to come back uh, from the dead and be resurrected. Whatever happens, whether it is... Uh, real 
Remember, uh, the passage tells us that uh, uh, power will be given them to make uh, signs and miracles to deceive, if even possible, even the elect. Uh, whether it's real or not, don't really care. I'm not going to go down that path. But the point is, is many are going to believe it to be real. Many are going to take this to be a miracle. Look, look, at, look at the effect of this. Verse 3, And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, who if you look back in uh, chapter 12, where is it? Verse 8, no, 9, that the dragon is the serpent of old called the devil and Satan. So this man, this beast, will get his authority from Satan and people will worship Satan through worshiping this beast. Satan will give power to him because through him, he's going to get what he has wanted all along, which is to be worshiped by God. Again, I would appeal you to look at Isaiah 14. You can also look at Ezekiel 28 to see the desires of, of, uh, of Satan. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? There, he's in a class of his own. And who can make war with the beast? Implication, nobody. This guy's top dog. He's top class. Better do what he says. To fear the beast and to yield to him and to say he is Lord, to to submit to his authority is to do the same to the dragon. And the intention, the purpose of Satan doing this through this man is when all the world is cowering before this man, by, by appearances, it will look like this man is king of the world. Satan will be so smug with pride as he's standing in the temple of God. He's standing in Jerusalem and he will be saying to heaven, look at what I have done to God's people. Look what I have done to God's creation. Look at verse 5. There was given him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. That's, that's the rest of the tribulation. And he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God. God he, the whole idea is he's trying, he's in a war against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority with every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. So all that rage on any Christians that are left after the persecution of the first three and a half years, all that rage is now going to be unleashed on them by this man as well as uh, uh, unleashed on Israel. Now, the remaining verses, some of you will notice how far it took me to get through the first half of verse 14, and you'll see how many verses are left, and some of you will be led to despair and feel that uh, maybe you'll be led to prayer. That's fine. Let's, let's see what we can do. The, the remaining verses are going to show us how bad it will be. 
And this will be a time of despair. That's, I'm calling this the despair of all the ages. It will be a time to despair as things become worse than they've ever been or ever will be again. Let's look at the despair of the ages. Jesus begins with a warning that when this crisis breaks, those who are in Judea must flee. When this happens, those in Judea must flee. He's not even limiting this to the disciples. It's not you must flee. Those, everybody living in the area, disciple or non-disciple, must flee and immediately evacuate. Now, that would, that's surprising. And that's counterintuitive because historically, when you had walled cities... Where was protection found? Where did people run to? Inside the walled city or outside the walled city? Outside the, or inside the walled city, yeah. You, you, you ran inside. You didn't run outside. It's going to be the exact opposite because Antichrist's base of operations is going to be in the temple. That's where he's standing when he does this abomination that causes the desolation. When he unleashes his terror on those living in Judea, in order to save their lives, the people must take flight and they must flee and retreat into the hills and into the wilderness. That word flee, it's the, it's the root word that we, uh, uh, for what, where we get fugitive. In other words, you will need to run, they will need to run like their lives depend on it because it will, because they're being hunted. Now look at the urgency described in verses 15 and 16. The one who's on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house, and the one who's in the field must not turn back to get his coat. Now, Palestinian homes used their roofs like you and I might use our deck or our patio, and you know we go out there to enjoy a nice, cool afternoon. That's what they did on their roofs. It was a place to relax. And they would normally go up there by means of an external stairway that would be outside the house. And the idea is, is if you're up on top of the house and, and word breaks out that this has happened, you don't go into the house to pack your things. You run. If you're out in the field, if you're at work, or maybe you're, um, to put it in our, in, in our vernacular, if you're out painting the fence, if you're out walking the dog, if you're outside of the house where all your stuff is, and word of this breaks, you run. You don't go back into the house. You don't pack a go bag. You don't even go for something as as basic and essential as a coat, something to keep warm with, something that you could use as a blanket. You don't go and pack a a sack lunch. You don't get your iPhone. You don't get your cable charger. You don't get all the things that takes me like four hours to pack when I go somewhere. You run. You flee. It's how urgent this will be. Even the slightest delay, it'll be so urgent, even the slightest delay could cost somebody their life. Any delay, any hindrance, anything that slows you down, even, even a handicap could cost you your life because danger will increase with every passing moment. Look at the, look at the lamentation. Look at the cry of despair that Jesus gives, in verse 17, he says, woe. This is a word normally, uh, uh, if it's being used actively, it means to condemn. But he's he's using it as a cry of despair. 
uh, uh, he's sorrowful for these people who are, or for these ladies who are pregnant and nursing when their greatest need will be to take flight. Their greatest need will be to run and to hide and to be silent because people are out hunting for their lives. They will be at a severe disadvantage. Now, I'm glad everyone is sitting down. Did you know that Amanda Jensen is pregnant? Where is she? She's not even in here. Oh, okay. Amanda's pregnant, and she can't be here to tell you, but I gather she would have a hard time with this sprinting if she needed to save her life. Right? Right. Okay. I asked her if I could do that, mind you. Okay. But imagine the difficulty. Uh, you, are, you are running. You are hiding. You are you're trying to cover yourself with debris because there are armed soldiers just around the corner, and you need to slip under, under something to conceal yourself, but you have this. Or imagine you're trying to hide and you have a crying, crying child, a crying baby. It'll be an extreme disadvantage. The, the, what, what, what is cause for one of the greatest joys in life will be a cause uh, potentially and likely for capture and death. And then verse 18, pray that it may not happen in the winter. The previous one is going to affect some, those who are pregnant, those who are, are those who have small children. This is one that would affect everybody. Uh, pray that it doesn't happen in the winter. What happens in the winter? Snow and rain. What happens to the roads? Gets muddy. Anyone tried running in the in the mud? What happens? Can you run as fast? No. Is it? Do you get tired quicker running in the rain or running in the mud? Yeah, what, uh, what chances of getting injured, chances of spraining your ankle, tripping, falling, cutting yourself goes up because you're running in the mud. Speed goes down, chances of, uh, of, of injury go up, chances of getting caught go up. And the, the normally docile rivers, they're called wadis. I love that word. I heard it all the time when we were in Jerusalem. The wadis. Uh, normally they're docile. If you've seen the, the rivers in, in Palestine, they're normally just these little trickles. You don't even know if there's any water in them. But in the, in the uh, winter, they just become a, a deluge of raging water. And so that's not something, it's like, it's like a canal. You've been told don't go swimming in the canal because there's a current underneath. That's what wadis are like. And someone may say, well, why not just use the bridges, Aaron? Well, what has been going on for the last three and a half years during this time? earthquakes, wars. The, the landscape has been blasted for the last three and a half years. The topography is not going to be the same. And, and all those things, all that phenomena, earthquakes and, and uh, famines and wars, all those are going to continue for the next three and a half years. Only now, in addition to all those, you have a tyrannical madman, a devil-possessed madman who has the world's strongest army backing him up in doing whatever he tells them to, you have this man bent on wiping the world uh, from the earth, everyone and anyone who doesn't bow down and worship him. That's why Jesus says, I mean, do, do you see the uniqueness and the urgency of this time? Yeah? That's why Jesus says in verse 19, for those days will be a time of what? Tribulation, trouble. 
distress. But Matthew, Matthew includes the word great tribulation. That's where we get that, that title from. The, the great tribulation is the second half when it gets worse. It's taken up to an 11. He says, those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now or ever will. That pretty much covers the playing field, doesn't it? That includes the the devastation of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That includes many more greater devastations with with, uh, wider scales, greater magnitudes before and after 70 AD. In World War I, there were about 16.5 million deaths. In World War II, there were at least 60 estimated million deaths. You know what the you know what the kill count was in the Noahic flood? All but eight. That is devastation. Jesus says, in the entirety of the history of the world, from the time God created it, until this happens, and then after it happens, this will be the worst. How can Jesus say that? How bad could it, would it, yet look at what he says in verse 20 unless it'll be so bad that unless the lord had shortened those days unless he came in intervened and put a stop no life would have been saved this isn't spiritual salvation that means physical salvation preservation all Uh, Unless God took action and and limited these days to a mere 42 months, if he had instead turned a blind eye and allowed these days to to, to take their natural due course, all life would be lost, all the earth would be reduced to an uninhabited husk. That's how bad the devastation will get. Mankind will literally kill itself. No one would be left standing. Not one life would be found at the end of it all. But passive indifference is not the path the Lord's going to take, is it? Verse 21. No, second half of... uh, Second half of verse 20. But for the sake of the elect... Whom he chose. Who are those? These are those who, uh, Paul says in Ephesians 1.4, those who God chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. Those who, as Romans 9 says, uh, God chose according to his foreknowledge. Before, and using Jacob and Esau as an example, before they did good or evil, before they did anything, God chose. For the sake of them. For the sake of his people, he shortened those days. This is the same word. Remember back in uh, chapter 9 when the disciples said, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we, we hindered him. We stopped him because he, he wasn't with us. And Jesus said, stop hindering him. This is the same word. God hindered. God stopped. God got in the way and put to an end these days. Not 
to save mankind as a whole, not to save the animals, not to save the rainforests, not to save the ecosystems. To save who? His elect, his people. Now before he does that in Revelation 19, there will be imposter saviors who will appear. They will attempt to deceive these elect that God will save. And the Lord graciously warns his people. Look in verse 21. And then if if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, I mean, you have to hear the excitement. Behold, Jesus is here. Christ is here. He's in this room, or he's in that building. He's with these people. Do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise. The true Christ will descend from heaven. Remember, Uh, Acts 1, same way that you saw him go up, he'll come back down. The the true Christ will descend from heaven in plain view for all to see. These arise out of nowhere. Nobody knows where these come from. And they will show signs and wonders in order to lead, if astray, uh, if possible, even the elect. Why would they do that? Well, if if they are uh, from among the Jews in hiding... It could be to take advantage of those who might have something. Uh, Even in times of distress, people will resort to lying and cheating cheating and stealing and murdering uh, for even the most menial of things. We see this in times of war, so that's a possibility. More likely, these would be uh, uh, those among the forces of Antichrist. They will be outside, and this would be a ruse. They would be trying to coax believers out of hiding to expose themselves to the soldiers who are waiting to mow them down. We see an example of this in World War II in cases like Stalingrad, the battle for Stalingrad, uh, where there were prolonged battles and, and it would, the, the fighting would, would uh, at least for a short time, uh, appear to be in a stalemate. And you have, you have armed soldiers here and over here and they're, They're not firing right now. And the Germans would broadcast to the entrenched Russians, um, I'll spare you the bad German accent, that they would say, um, uh, there is food. There's hot food. There is clean clothing. There is a warm bed waiting for you. If you would just, I mean, the the battle's over. We shouldn't be fighting. We're friends. Just lay down your arms and, and come out and, and, and we'll give you food and clothing and, and a warm bed. And the Russians learned, those who came out learned all too late that it wasn't a warm bed or food or clothing that was waiting for them, but machine gun fire. That's exactly what will happen in those days. False Christs will appear to deceive and they will back it up even with signs and wonders. Jesus says, but take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance so that they would be prepared. There's three takeaways from this, from this text I, I want us to see. I hope it's apparent. I hope it is plain to see, and you don't have to scratch your head and wonder, where did he get this from, that God is sovereign? From beginning to end, God is the one in control. God is the one calling the shots. He is the highest authority. He is sovereign, meaning no one is above him telling him what he 
can or can't do or what he needs to do. He is the one telling others what to do. He is sovereign. He is in control in judgment. He is sovereign. Uh, we looked back in Second Thessalonians 2. He is restraining this man of lawlessness. And he will remove that restrainer. The whole reason that these things will happen is because God has said, okay, now's the time. He, remember with, uh, with, with Job, Satan had to ask permission to afflict Job. And God said, okay. Why? Because God is sovereign and Satan is not. He's sovereign in the, in the beginning of these days. He's sovereign in calling these days to come to an end. He's sovereign in judgment. He is sovereign in salvation. God is sovereign and beloved. How must this doctrine change our minds today, especially when you see on an almost daily basis that this world appears to be falling apart? We need to remember that God is sovereign and nothing takes him by surprise. Nothing ever escapes his control. Amen? That would lead us to also conclude that as God is sovereign, the world isn't sovereign. The world wants you to think it is. The world is like a bully. It gets in your face and it makes you try to base your decision on feeling more than objective truth. I, want you, I hope you saw in these passages we looked at that the world is not full of players. The, full, the world is full of people who are being played. Power will be given to the beast, and with his power, many will be duped by his miracles. Many will be swayed by his charm, and everybody else will be coerced and forced into obeying him out of fear. All of that is happening because God allows it. The world is not sovereign. Third, I want you to see that Jesus cares for his people. Do you see the concern that he has for his disciples? Do you see the concern that he has that he doesn't want them to be afraid? He doesn't want them to fear that history has spiraled out of control. Do you see that? He has warned them repeatedly. He's exhorted them to be looking, to, to, to know what he has said is coming. And he's, he's told them the truth. He's told them what is coming. He's told them the truth, but he's assured them that they will be saved. So great is his faithfulness to his people that he will personally intervene. He's going to stop the most powerful villain the world has ever known. He's going to destroy the most powerful army the world has ever known. Why? To save his people. You can see that in Revelation 19. The Lord cares for his people. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this, uh, for this text. Thank you for helping us get through it. Lord, I pray... Uh, in light of the tumult that we see all around us, in light of shootings and chaos, in, the light, in light of uh, false promises by so many, in light of fears and anxieties, 
draw people to yourself, cause us to look to you as the solution to the world's problems. May we not look to programs. May we not look to governments. May we not look to, to, uh, to programs or false promises. Let us be looking to the Lord Jesus Christ and let us be built, let us build our faith upon the words that he has graciously provided to his church. Amen.